0: Chapter Twenty Five of The Three Clarks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Barry O'Neill. The Three Clarks by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Twenty Five. Chiswick Gardens. The following Thursday was as fine as a Chiswick flower show day ought to be, and so very seldom is the party who had agreed to congregate there—the party, that is, whom we are to meet—was very select. Linda and Katie had come up to spend a few days with their sister. Mrs. Val, Clementina, Gertrude, and Linda were to go in a carriage, for which Alaric was destined to pay, and which Mrs. Val had hired, having selected it regardless of expense as one which, by its decent exterior and polished outward graces, conferred on its temporary occupiers an agreeable appearance of proprietorship. The two Miss Neverbends, sisters of Fidus, were also to be with them, and they with Katie followed humbly as became their station in a cab, which was not only hired, but which very vulgarly told the fact to all the world. Slight as had been the intimacy between Fidus Neverbend and Alaric at Tavistock, Nevertheless, a sort of friendship had since grown up between them. Alaric had ascertained that Fidus might in a certain degree be useful to him, that the good word of the Aristides of the works and buildings might be serviceable, and that, in short, Neverbend was worth cultivating. Neverbend, on the other hand, when he perceived that Tudor was likely to become a civil-service hero, a man to be named with glowing eulogy at all the government boards in London, felt unconsciously a desire to pay him some of that reverence which a mortal always feels for a god. And thus there was formed between them a sort of alliance, which included also the ladies of the family. Not that Mrs. Val or even Mrs. A. Tudor encountered Lactimel and Eugolina Neverbend on equal terms. There is a distressing habitual humility in many unmarried ladies of a certain age, which at the first blush tells the tale against them which they are so painfully anxious to leave untold. In order to maintain their places, but yet a little longer, in that delicious world of love, sighs, and dancing partners, from which it must be so hard for a maiden, with all her youthful tastes about her, to tear herself forever away, they smile and say pretty things put up with the caprices of married woman and play second fiddle though the doing so in no wit assists them in their task nay the doing so does but stamp them the more plainly with that horrid name from which they would so fain escape their plea is for mercy have pity on me have pity on me put up with me but for one other short twelve months and then if then i shall have still failed i will be content to vanish from the world for ever when did such a plea for pity from one woman ever find a real entrance into the heart of another on such terms however the misses neverbend were content to follow mrs val to the chiswick flower show and to feed on the crumbs which might chance to fall from the rich table of miss golightly to partake of broken meat in the shape of cast-off adorers and regaled themselves with lukewarm civility from the outsiders in the throng which followed that adorable heiress and yet the misses neverbend were quite as estimable as the divine clementina and had once been perhaps as attractive as she is now they had never waltzed, it is true, as Miss Gold lightly waltzes. It may be doubted, indeed, whether any lady ever did. In the pursuit of that amusement, Ugolina was apt to be stiff and ungainly, and to turn herself, or allow herself to be turned, as though she were made of wood. She was somewhat flat in her figure, looking as though she had been uncomfortably pressed into an unbecoming thinness of substance and a corresponding breadth of surface. And this conformation did not assist her in acquiring a graceful flowing style of motion. The elder sister, Lactimel, was of a different form, but yet hardly more fit to shine in the mazes of the dance than her sister. She had her charms, nevertheless, which consisted of a somewhat stumpy-dumpy comeliness. She was altogether short in stature, and very short below the knee. She had fair hair and a fair skin, small bones and copious soft flesh. She had a trick of sighing gently in the evolutions of the waltz, which young men attributed to her softness of heart, and old ladies to her shortness of breath. They both loved dancing dearly and were content to enjoy it whenever the chance might be given to them, by the aid of Miss Golightly's crumbs. The two sisters were as unlike in their inward lights as in their outward appearance. Lactimel walked ever on the earth, but Ugolina never deserted the clouds. Lactamel talked prose and professed to read it. Ugolina read poetry and professed to write it. Lactimel was utilitarian. Cui bono, though probably in less classic phrase, was the question she asked as to everything. Eugolina was transcendental, and denied that there could be real good in anything. Lactamel would have clothed and fed the hungry and naked, so that all mankind might be comfortable. Eugolina would have brought mankind back to their original nakedness, and have taught them to feed on the grasses of the field, so that the claims of the body which so vitally opposed those of the mind might remain unheeded and despised. They were both a little nebulous in their doctrines, and apt to be somewhat unintelligible in their discourse, when indulged in the delights of unrestrained conversation. Lactamel had a theory that every poor brother might eat of the fat and drink of the sweet, might lie softly and wear fine linen if only somebody or buddies could be induced to do their duties and ugolina was equally strong in a belief that if the mind were properly looked to all appreciation of human ill would cease but they delighted in generalizing rather than in detailed propositions and had not probably even in their own minds realized any exact idea as to the means by which the results they desired were to be brought about they toadied mrs val poor young woman how little they should be blamed for this fault which came so naturally to them in their forlorn position they toadied mrs val and therefore mrs val bore with them they bored gertrude and gertrude for her husband's sake bore with them also they were confidential with Clementina, and Clementina, of course, snubbed them. They called Clementina the sweetest creature. Loctomel declared that she was born to grace the position of a wife and mother, and Ugolina swore that her face was perfect poetry. Whereupon Clementina laughed aloud, and elegantly made a grimace with her nose and mouth, as she turned the perfect poetry to her mother. Such were the ladies of the party who went to the Chiswick flower-show, and who afterwards were to figure at Mrs. Val's little evening the dansant, at which nobody was to be admitted, who was not nice. They were met at the gate of the gardens by a party of young men, of whom Victoire Jacques was foremost. Alaric and Charlie were to come down there when their office work was done. Undy was by this time in his road to Tilly Tidlam, and Captain Val was playing billiards at his club. The latter had given a promise that he would make his appearance, a promise, however, which no one expected or wished him to keep. The happy victoire was dressed up to his eyes. That perhaps is not saying much, for he was only a few feet high, but what he wanted in quantity he fully made up in quality. He was a well-made, shining, jaunty little Frenchman who seemed to be perfectly at ease with himself and all the world. He had the smallest little pair of mustaches imaginable, the smallest little imperial, the smallest possible pair of boots, and the smallest possible pair of gloves. Nothing on earth could be nicer or sweeter or finer than he was. But he did not carry his finery like a hog in armor, as an Englishman so often does when an Englishman stoops to be fine. It sat as naturally on Victoire as though he had been born in it. He jumped about in his best patent leather boots, apparently quite heedless whether he spoilt them or not, and when he picked up Miss Golightly's parasol from the gravel, he seemed to suffer no anxiety about his gloves. He handed out the ladies, one after another, as though his life had been passed in handing out ladies, as indeed it probably had, in handing them out and handing them in. And, when Mrs. Val's private carriage passed on, he was just as courteous to the Mrs. Neverbend and Katie in their cab as he had been to the greater ladies who had descended from the more ambitious vehicle as Katie said afterwards to linda when she found the free use of her voice in her own bedroom he was a darling little duck of a man only he smelt so strongly of tobacco but when they were once in the garden victoire had no time for any one but mrs val and clementina he had done his duty by the misses neverbend and those other two insipid young english girls and now he had his own affairs to look after he also knew that miss golightly had twenty thousand pounds of her own he was one of those butterfly beings who seem to have been created that they may flutter about from flower to flower in the summer hours of such gala times as those now going on at chiswick just as other butterflies do what the butterflies were last winter or what will become of them next winter no one but the naturalist thinks of inquiring how they may feed themselves on flower-juice or on insects small enough to be their prey is matter of no moment to the general world it is sufficient that they flit about in the sunbeams and add bright glancing spangles to the beauty of the summer day and so it was with victoire Jacquetinape. he did no work he made no honey he appeared to no one in the more serious moments of life He was the reverse of Shylock, who would neither buy with you, nor sell with you. But he would eat with you, and drink with you. As for praying, he did little of that, either with or without company. He was clothed in purple and fine linen, as butterflies should be clothed, and fared sumptuously every day. But whence came his gay colours, or why people fed him with pâté and champagne? nobody knew and nobody asked like most frenchmen of his class he never talked about himself he understood life and the art of pleasing and the necessity that he should please too well to do so all that his companions knew of him was that he came from france and that when the gloomy months came on in england the months so unfitted for a french butterfly he packed up his azure wings, and sought some more genial climate, certain to return, and be seen again, when the world of London became habitable. If he had means of living, no one knew it. If he was in debt, no one ever heard of it. If he had a care in the world, he concealed it. He abounded in acquaintances who were always glad to see him, and would have regarded it as quite de trop to have a friend. Nevertheless, time was flying on with him as with others, and, butterfly as he was, the idea of Misko Lightly's twenty thousand pounds struck him with delightful amazement. Five hundred thousand francs! And so he resolved to dance his very best, warm as the weather undoubtedly was at the present moment. Ah, he was charmed to see madame and mademoiselle look so charmingly, he said, walking between mother and daughter, but paying apparently much the greater share of attention to the elder lady. In this respect, we Englishmen might certainly learn much from the manners of our dear allies. We know well enough how to behave ourselves to our fair young countrywoman. We can be civil enough to young women, nature teaches us that but it is so seldom that we are sufficiently complacent to be civil to old women. And yet that, after all, is the soul of gallantry. It is to the sex that we profess to do homage. Our theory is that feminine weakness shall receive from man's strength humble and respectful service. But where is the chivalry? Where is the gallantry if we only do service in expectation of receiving such guerdon as rosy cheeks and laughing eyes can bestow? It may be said that Victoire had an object in being civil to Mrs. Val. But the truth is, all French Victoires are courteous to old ladies. An Englishman may probably be as forward as a Frenchman in rushing into a flaming building to save an old woman's life. But then it so rarely happens that occasion offers itself for gallantry such as that. A man, however, may with ease be civil to a dozen old women in a day. And so they went on, walking through parterres and glass-houses, talking of theatres, balls, dinner-parties, picnics, concerts, operas, of ladies, married and single, of single gentlemen who should be married and of merry gentlemen who should be single, of everything, indeed, except the flowers, of which neither Victoire nor his companions took the slightest notice. Ah, madame really has a dance to-night in her own house. Oh, yes, said Mrs. Val. that is just a few quadrilles and waltzes for Clementina. I really hardly know whether the people will take the carpet up or no. The people, consisting of the cook and the housemaid, for the page had, of course, come with the carriage, were at this moment hard at work wrenching up the nails, as Mrs. Val was very well aware. It will be delightful, charming, said Victoire. Just a few people of our own set, you know, said Mrs. Val. No crowd or fuss or anything of that sort. Just a few people that we know are nice in a quiet, homely way. Ah, that is so pleasing, said Monsieur Victoire that is just what i like and is mademoiselle engaged for no mademoiselle was not engaged for or for or for etc 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 and then out came the little tablets under the dome of a huge greenhouse filled with the most costly exotics and clementina and her fellow labourer in the cause of terpsichore went to work to make their arrangements for the evening and the rest of the party followed them gertrude was accompanied by an englishman just as idle and quite as useless as m victoire of the butterfly tribe also but not so graceful and without colour and then came the Misses neverbend walking together and with them one on each side two tall frenchmen whose faces had been remodelled in that mould into which so large a proportion of parisians of the present day force their heads in order that they may come out with some look of the emperor about them were there not some machine as this in operation it would be impossible that so many frenchmen should appear with elongated angular hard faces all as like each other as though they were brothers the cut of the beard the long, prickly-ended, clotted moustache, which looks as though it were being continually rolled up in saliva, the sallow, half-bronzed, apparently unwashed colour. These may all, perhaps, be assumed by any man after a certain amount of labour and culture, but how it has come to pass that every Parisian has been able to obtain for himself a pair of the Emperor's long, hard, bony, cruel-looking cheeks no englishman has yet been able to guess that having the power they should have the wish to wear this mask is almost equally remarkable can it be that a political phase when stamped on a people with an iron hand of sufficient power of pressure will leave its impress on the outward body as well as on the inward soul if so a frenchman may perhaps be thought to have gained in the apparent stubborn wilfulness of his countenance some recompense for his compelled loss of all political wilfulness whatever be this as it may the two misses neverbend walked on each with a stubborn long-faced frenchman at her side looking altogether not ill-pleased at this instance of the excellence of french manners after them came linda talking to some acquaintance of her own and then poor dear little katy with another frenchman sterner more stubborn-looking more long-faced more like the pattern after whom he and they had been remodelled than any of them poor little katy this was her first day in public with many imploring caresses with many half-formed tears in her bright eyes with many assurances of her perfect health she had induced her mother to allow her to come to the flower-show to allow her also to go to Mrs. Val's dance, at which there were to be none but such very nice people. Katie was to commence her life, to open her ball with this flower-show. In her imagination it was all to be one long, bright flower-show, in which, however, the sweet sorrowing of the sensitive plant would ever and anon invite her to pity and tears. When she entered that narrow portal, she entered the world and there she found herself walking on the well mown grass, with this huge, stern, bearded Frenchman by her side. As to talking to him, that was quite out of the question. At the gate some slight ceremony of introduction had been gone through, which had consisted in all the Frenchmen taking off their hats and bowing to the two married ladies, and in the Englishmen standing behind and poking the gravel with their canes. But in this no special notice had of course been taken of Katy, and she had a kind of idea-whence derived she knew not-that it would be improper for her to talk to this man unless she were actually and bonafide fide introduced to him. And then again poor Katy was not very confident in her French, and then her companion was not very intelligible in his English, so when the gentleman asked, Is it that mademoiselle Love de Fleur? Poor Katie felt herself tremble, and tried in vain to mutter something, and when, again essaying to do his duty, he suggested that all the beauté of Londres did delight to walk itself at Chiswick. She was equally dumb, merely turning on him her large eyes for one moment to show that she knew that he had addressed her. After that he walked on as silent as herself, still keeping close to her side. And other ladies, who had not the good fortune to have male companions, envied her happiness in being so attended. But Alaric and Charlie were coming, she knew. Alaric was her brother-in-law now, and therefore she would be delighted to meet him. And Charlie! Dear Charlie! She had not seen him since he went away that morning, now four days since. And four days was a long time, considering that he had saved her life. Her busy little fingers had been hard at work the while, and now she had in her pocket the purse which she had been so eager to make, and which she was almost afraid to bestow. "'Oh, Linda,' she had said, "'I I don't think I will, after all. It is such a little thing.' "'Nonsense, child, you wouldn't give him a wort counterpane. Little things are best for presents.' "'But it isn't good enough,' she said, looking at her handiwork in despair." But, nevertheless, she persevered, working in the golden beads with constant diligence, so that she might be able to give it to Charlie among the Chiswick flowers. Oh, what a place it was in which to bestow a present, with all the eyes of the world upon her! And then, this dance to which she was going, the thought of what she would do there troubled her. Would any one ask her to dance?" Would Charlie think of her when he had so many grown-up girls? Girls quite grown up, all around him. It would be very sad if at this London party it should be her fate to sit down the whole evening and see others dance. It would suffice for her, she thought, if she could stand up with Linda. But she had an idea that this would not be allowed at a London party, and then Linda perhaps might not like it altogether she had much upon her mind and was beginning to think that perhaps she might have been happier to have stayed at home with her mamma she had not quite recovered from the effect of her toss into the water or the consequent excitement and a very little misery would upset her and so she walked on with her napoleonic companion from whom she did not know how to free herself through one glass house after another across lawns and along paths, attempting every now and then to get a word with Linda, and not at all so happy as she had hoped to have been. At last Gertrude came to her rescue. They were all congregated for a while in one great flower-house, and Gertrude, finding herself near her sister, asked her how she liked it all. "'Oh, it is very beautiful,' said Katie. "'Only—' "'Only what, dear?' Would you let me come with you a little while? Look here!" And she crept softly around to the other side of her sister, sidling with little steps away from the Frenchman, at whom, however, she kept furtively looking, as though she feared that he would detect her in the act. "'Look here, Gertrude,' she said, twitching her sister's arm. "'That gentleman there, you see him, don't you? He's a Frenchman, and I don't know how to get away from him.' "'How to get away from him?' said Gertrude. That's Monsieur de la Barbe de l'Empereur, a great friend of Mrs. Val's, and a very quiet sort of man, I believe. He won't eat you. No, he won't eat me, I know, but I can't look at anything because he will walk so close to me. Mayn't I come with you? Gertrude told her she might. And so Katie made good her escape, hiding herself from her enemy as well as she could behind her sister's petticoats. He, poor man, was perhaps as rejoiced at the arrangement as Katie herself. At any rate, he made no attempt to regain his prey, but went on by himself, looking as placidly stern as ever, till he was absorbed by Mrs. Val's more immediate party, and then he devoted himself to her, while Monsieur Jacquetenape settled with Clementina the properest arrangement for the waltzes of the evening. Katie was beginning to be tranquilly happy, and was listening to the enthusiasm of Ugolina Neverbend, who declared that flowers were the female poet's fitting food. It may be doubted whether she had ever tried it. When her heart leaped within her on hearing a sharp, clear, well-known voice, almost close behind her, it was Charlie Tudor after her silent prod with monsieur de la barbe de l'empereur katy had been well pleased to put up with the obscure but yet endurable volubility of Ugolina. but now she felt almost as anxious to get quit of Ugolina as she had before been to shake off the frenchman flowers are nature's chef-d'oeuvre said Ugolina. they convey to me the purest and most direct essence of that heavenly power of production which is the sweetest evidence which jehovah gives us of his presence do they said katy looking over her shoulder to watch what Charlie was doing and to see whether he was coming to notice her they are the bright stars of his immediate handiwork said ugolina and if our dim eyes could read them aright they would whisper to us the secret of his love yes i dare say they would said katy who felt perhaps a little disappointed because Charlie lingered a while shaking hands with Mrs. Val and Clementina Golightly. It was, however, but for a moment. There was much shaking of hands to be done, and a considerable taking off of hats to be gone through, and as Alaric and Charlie encountered the head of the column first, it was only natural that they should work their way through it gradually. Katie, however, never guessed. How could she? that Charlie had calculated that by reaching her last he would be able to remain with her. She was still listening to Ugolina, who was mounting higher and higher up to Heaven, when she found her hand in Charlie's. Ugolina might now mount up and get down as best she could, for Katie could no longer listen to her. Alaric had not seen her yet since her ducking. She had to listen to and to answer his congratulations. "'Charlie standing by and making his comments. "'Charlie says you took to the water quite naturally, and swam like a duck,' said Alaric. "'Only she went in head foremost,' said Charlie. "'All bathers ought to do that,' said Alaric. "'And tell me, Katie, did you feel comfortable when you were in the water?' "'Indeed I don't recollect anything about it,' said she, "'only that I saw Charlie coming to me, just when I was going to sink for the last time.' "'Sink? Why, I'm told you floated, like a deal-board.' "'The big hat and the crinoline kept her up,' said Charlie. She had no idea of sinking. "'Oh, Charlie, you know I was under the water for a long time, and that if you had not come just at that very moment I should never have come up again.' And then Alaric went on, and Charlie and Katie were left together. How was she to give him the purse? It was burning a hole in her pocket till she could do so. And yet how was she to get it out of her possession into his, and make her little speech here in the public garden? She could have done it easily enough at home, in the drawing-room at Surbiton Cottage. "'And how do you like the gardens?' asked Charlie. "'Oh, they are beautiful, but I have hardly been able to see anything yet. I have been going about with a great big Frenchman. There, that man there.' He has such a queer name. Did his name prevent your seeing? No, not his name. I didn't know his name then. But it seemed so odd to be walking about with such a man as that. But I want to go back and look at the black and yellow roses in the house. There, would you go with me? That is, if we may. I wonder whether we may. Charlie was clearly of opinion that they might, and should, and would and so away they sallied back to the roses and katie began to enjoy the first installment of the happiness which she had anticipated in the temple of the roses the crowd at first was great and she could not get the purse out of her pocket nor make her speech but after a while the people passed on and there was a lull before others filled their places and katie found herself opposite to a beautiful black rose with no one close to her but Charlie. "'I have got something for you,' she said, and as she spoke she felt herself to be almost hot with blushing. "'Something for me?' said Charlie, and he also felt himself abashed, but he did not know why. "'It's only a very little thing,' said Katie, feeling in her pocket, "'and I am almost ashamed to ask you to take it, but I made it all myself. No one else put a stitch in it.' And so saying, and looking around to see that she was not observed, she handed her gift to Charlie. "'Oh, Katie, dearest Katie,' said he, "'I am so much obliged to you. I'll keep it till I die.' "'I didn't know what to make that was better,' said she. "'Nothing on earth could possibly be better,' said he. "'A plate of bread and butter, and a purse are a very poor return for saving one's life,' said she." half-laughing half-crying he looked at her with his eyes full of love and as he looked he swore within himself that come what might he would never see nora garrity again but would devote his life to an endeavour to make himself worthy of the angel that was now with him katie the while was looking up anxiously into his face she was thinking of no other love than that which it became her to feel for the man who had saved her life she was thinking of no other love, but her young heart was opening itself to a very different feeling. She was sinking deep, deep in waters which were to go near to drown her warm heart, much nearer than those other waters which she had fancied had all but closed for ever over her life. She looked into his face, and saw that he was pleased, and that for the present was enough for her. She was at any rate happy now. So they passed on through the roses, and then lost themselves among the geraniums, and wondered at the gigantic rhododendrons and the beautiful azaleas, and so went on from house to house, and from flower-bed to flower-bed, Katie talking, and Charlie listening, till she began to wonder at her former supineness, and to say both to herself, and out loud to her companion, how very, very, very glad she was that her mother had let her come poor katy dear darling bonny katy sweet sweetest dearest child why oh why has that mother of thine that tender-hearted loving mother put thee unguarded in the way of such peril as this has she not sworn to herself that over thee at least she should watch as a hen does over her young so that no unfortunate love should quench thy young spirit or blanch thy cheeks bloom Has she not trembled at the thought of what should have befallen thee? Had thy fate been such as Linda's? Has she not often? Oh, how often! On her knees thanked the Almighty God that Linda's spirit was not as thine, that this evil had happened to the Lamb whose temper had been fitted by him to endure it. And yet here thou art, all unguarded, all unaided left by thyself to drink of the cup of sweet poison, and none near to warn thee that the draught is deadly. Alas, twould be useless to warn thee now. The false god has been placed upon the altar, the temple all shining with gems and gold, has been built all around him. The incense cup is already swinging. Nothing will now turn the idolater from her worship, nothing short of a miracle, Our Katie's childish days are now all gone. A woman's passion glows within her breast, though as yet she has not scanned it with a woman's intelligence. Her mother, listening to a child's entreaty, had suffered her darling to go forth for a child's amusement. It was doomed that the child should return no more but in lieu of her a fair heart-laden maiden whose every fondest thought must henceforth be of a stranger's welfare and a stranger's fate but it must not be thought that Charlie abused the friendship of mrs woodward and made love to Katie, as love is usually made with warm words assurances of affection with squeezing of the hand with sighs and all a lover's ordinary catalogue of resources though we have said that he was a false god, yet he was hardly to be blamed for the temple and the gems and gold with which he was endowed. Not more so, perhaps, than the unconscious bud which is made so sacred on the banks of the Egyptian river. He loved, too, perhaps as warmly, though not so fatally as Katie did. But he spoke no word of his love. He walked among the flowers with her, laughing and listening to her in his usual light-hearted easy manner every now and again his arm would thrill with pleasure as he felt on it the touch of her little fingers and his heart would leap within him as he gazed on the speaking beauty of her face but he was too honest-hearted to talk to the young girl to mrs woodward's child of love he talked to her as to a child but she listened to him and loved him as a woman and so they rambled on, till the hour appointed for quitting this Elysium had arrived. Every now and again they had a glimpse of some one of their party, which had satisfied Katie that they were not lost. At first Clementina was seen, tracing with her parasol on the turf, the plan of a new dance. Then Eugolina passed by them, describing the poetry of the motion of the spheres in a full flow of impassioned eloquence monsieur de la barbe de l'empereur c'est toujours vrai C'est que mademoiselle dit c'est toujours vrai was the frenchman's answer which they had heard thrice repeated and then lactamel and captain bell were seen together the latter having disappointed the prophecies which had been made respecting him lactamel had an idea that as the scots were great people they were all in parliament and she was endeavouring to persuade Captain Val that something ought to be done for the poor. Think, she said, only think, Captain Scott, of all the money this fete must cost. "'A deuced sight!' said the captain, hardly articulating from under his thick sandy-coloured moustache, which, growing downwards from his nose, looked like a heavy thatch put on to protect his mouth from the inclemency of the clouds above. "'A deuced sight!' said the captain. Now suppose, Captain Scott, that all this money could be collected—the tickets, you know, and the dresses, and—' "'I wish I knew how to do it,' said the captain." Lactimel went on with her little scheme for expending the cost of the flower-show in bread and bacon for the poor Irish of Saffron Hill, but Charlie and Katie heard no more, for the mild philosopher passed out of hearing, and out of sight at last katy got a poke in her back from a parasol just as Charlie had expended half a crown one of mr meruin's last in purchasing for her one simple beautiful flower to put into her hair that night you naughty puss said gertrude we have been looking for you all over the gardens mrs val and the miss neverbends have been waiting this half hour katy looked terribly frightened come along and don't keep them waiting any longer they are all in the passage this was your fault master Charlie. oh no it was not said katie but we thought never mind thinking said gertrude but come along and so they hurried on and were soon replaced in their respective vehicles and then went back to town well i do think that chiswick gardens is the nicest place in all the world said katie leaning back in the cab and meditating on her past enjoyment they are very pretty. Very, said Lactamel, never-bend. I only wish every cotter had such a garden behind his cottage. I am sure we might manage it, if we set about it in the right way. What, as big as Chiswick, said Katie? No, not so big, said Lactamel, but quite as nicely kept. I think the pigs would get in, said Katie. It would be much easier, and more important, too, to keep their minds nicely, said Ugolina, and there the pigs could never get in. "'No, I suppose not,' said Katie. "'I don't know that,' said Lactamal. End of chapter 25